Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Acts. And actually, I'm going to begin reading in chapter 7. Uh, I'm sorry, a reading today um, from chapter 6. We're going to be covering Acts chapter 7, or, or most of it. But I want to back up and read chapter 6, starting in verse uh, 8, and then just read the first verse of chapter 7, and then we'll cover the rest as we work through the passage. So starting in chapter 6, verse 8, hear now God's word. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia disputing with Stephen, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Maybe seated. Last Lord's Day, we covered Acts chapter 6, which is... 15 verses long. Uh, Chapter 7 is 60 verses long, and I hope to cover 53 of those verses in this sermon. And you can thank me later, but Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 38 sermons from Acts chapter 7. So we have a lot of territory to cover this morning. I want to try and extract the heart of Stephen's defense before the council and make some application to our own circumstances. The Jewish authorities, teachers, and many of the people had missed the point of Abraham, Moses, and the temple. They had come to rely on their forms. They had come to rely upon their liturgy but they failed to retain the substance of what it meant to have a vital, living relationship with God. Many want a God who fits very neatly into their constructed categories, and God refuses to do so. Throwing caution to the wind, Stephen is now going to offer his defense And in fact, he is going to make an accusation of his own. So Stephen has received two false accusations. And now the high priest is asking him, are these things so? And so he is now going to give a brief review of Old Testament history, drawing out some points that they seem to have missed. Not only was his teaching not blasphemous, It actually honored God. It actually honored Moses and the temple. And so the Jews, who completely identified Yahweh with the temple, uh, so, so to suggest its destruction was tantamount 
to blasphemy against God. After all, this was God's house. And Israel was God's elect nation. So in the days gone by, Jeremiah seemed to mock the common mantra that was often heard. As We find this in Jeremiah 7, 4. The temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. Uh, so again, this is a very central thing. Uh, trust in the temple had become mostly form by this time without substance or what we would just simply call formalism. These folks were convinced of their right standing with God primarily because of these external things. They went to church. They did the liturgy. They, they followed all the rules. They had the building to show for it, a glorious temple there in Jerusalem. And so let me pause at the beginning here and challenge you to consider what place the church plays in your life. On the one hand, we should love the church, the church that Jesus died for, the church that we are part of, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. But it's also possible for that to turn into something else, to an institution, to something external. I went to church this week. I feel good about myself. Everything's okay. I can go back. I can go out the doors and go back to my other life. I did the liturgy. I did the form. And now I can just go back to my regular life, life in the real world. Well, These folks, again, were convinced that they had a right standing with God because they were members of the right church, if you will. So again, our question is, have the forms been substituted for the substance? Are you here today to go through the liturgy or to eagerly worship and live the liturgy? Stephen is going to use four major events and characters from Israel's history Demonstrating that in all of these situations, God's presence is not limited to a particular place. In fact, this is the living God and He cannot be confined. He can literally not be put in a box, including the temple. It's true that Stephen's audience was acquainted with the bare facts of their ancestral history, but they were blind, apparently, to its significance. They failed to grasp all the, the, the fact that all of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms spoke of the coming Messiah, of course, who was Jesus, the one whom they had rejected and crucified. And so we'll take up each section of Stephen's speech. I don't think it's really a sermon. Sometimes it's called... Stephen's sermon, but this is uh, really a trial. He's brought, and now he's making a defense, if you will. And let's make a few observations about what he had to say. I want to acknowledge uh, the benefit and reliance upon John Stott's commentary on the book of Acts. It was very helpful. Let's look at um, verses 2 through 8. And he said... This is Stephen now addressing in answer to that question, are these things so? Uh, He said, brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham 
when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran. And he said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and, and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father's father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them for 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. So Stephen is not the first to point out the misunderstanding of the significance of Abraham. John the Baptist, you'll recall, had previously spoken to the Pharisees who had come out to hear what the hubbub was with John and all of Israel, all of Jerusalem coming out uh, to hear John. And here's what he says, Therefore bear fruits, this is John speaking to them, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves... We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Don't rely upon your circumcision. Don't rely upon your genetic heritage. Don't rely upon the fact that you were born into a Christian home or that you've been baptized. That's not enough. Those things should point you in the right direction. Those things are blessings, but they can be turned into uh, something of a curse if you miss the point. So neither physical descent from Abraham nor ritual participation in the temple or circumcision or worship is a guarantee of ultimate membership in the kingdom of God. So Stephen starts by pointing out that God appeared to Abraham, still Abram at the time, while he was in Mesopotamia, specifically Ur of the Chaldeans, which was a pagan land. In this idolatrous place, God speaks to Abram and tells him to leave his home and family and go to another land. While their their father, Abraham, didn't own a square inch of soil in Israel, much less in Jerusalem. Nevertheless, God initiates a covenant with Abraham so that long before there was a holy place, there was a holy people to whom God had pledged himself. Now remember, Stephen is answering this question about the temple. What is the place of the temple? Is it everything? And he's starting out saying, well, it certainly wasn't everything for Abraham. Abraham didn't have a temple. In fact, he didn't even have one square inch of land in what we call the Holy Land. And another point to remember is that, like Abraham, we are to live in terms of the promises of God and subsequent generations. So Abraham doesn't live long enough to see the fulfillment of these promises, not ultimately. He sees the beginning of them with Isaac, 
But what did Abraham see? He saw Christ Day and rejoiced. He saw 2,000 years down the road and lived in terms of that. Neither his story nor our stories are over in a lifetime, in our lifetimes, and perhaps this is why the judgment day doesn't come until the very end. Second, we have Joseph in the Egyptian exile in verses 9 through 16, and the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our, he, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh, then Joseph sent and called, for his, called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem. Um, so if you think Mesopotamia is an odd place for God to show up, What about Egypt? To drive home his point, Stephen mentions Egypt seven times. By the way, I think Stephen is also demonstrating to the council that he knew his Bible. He wasn't ignorant of Moses or Abraham or Joseph or David or the temple or the law. Here God's people were in bondage in Egypt for 400 years, verse 6. But God delivers Joseph from all of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his house. God was with Joseph and ultimately with his family and several generations of his people in Egypt. There was no temple. There was no law of Moses yet. Third, we have the description of Moses, the Exodus, and the wilderness wandering. And this is a longer section, verses 17 through 43. But when the time of the promise drew near which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. And this man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was sent out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, And seeing one of them suffering wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. 
And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren, why do you do wrong to one another? But he who did, the, did, but he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now, I, and now come, uh, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and a judge, a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out, and after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the, and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness, 40 years. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is, the, this is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god, Remphan, Images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. So Stephen divides the story of Moses into three 40-year periods, and as he tells the story, it is certainly clear that Stephen demonstrates his immense respect for Moses. God had told Abraham of the coming 400-year enslavement, but now the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham. Actually, remember, God had made two promises to give Abraham many descendants and to give them a land, Canaan. And we should note that the the first promise had already been fulfilled. Verse 17 uh, uh, is fulfilled in Egypt. The people grew and multiplied in Egypt. Another Pharaoh who knew not Joseph oppressed the people and even killed the newborn babies trying to keep a leader to emerge. And, of course, that's going to foreshadow and remind us of what will happen uh, at the birth of Jesus with Herod's killing 
of the newborn boys. It was, it was at this moment of the greatest darkness that Moses was born, the one who would be their deliverer and their savior. So after 40 years in exile, God appears to Moses in a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. And so God identified himself and he told Moses to remove his sandals because the very place where he was standing was holy ground. So for the last 40 years, what we should conclude, and I think the point Stephen's making is, wherever God is, is holy. And where is God? <laughs> the last 40 years of Moses' life, he spent leading Israel out of Egypt, and he did so with authenticating signs and wonders, just like the apostles are doing right now in Jerusalem. Moreover, it was here that Moses foretold of the great prophet, Jesus, who was in the congregation, and that's the, the Greek, the Septuagint there uses the word ekklesia, which is where we get our word church, in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. This is the same angel who spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai with our fathers the one who received the living oracles to give to us. So now Stephen starts to make a shift, and he reminds the council of what happened next, which was Israel rejected Moses. They rejected his leadership, and then in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt and called for idols to be made and worshipped. They made objects with their hands and worshipped those objects instead of Yahweh. And Stephen wants his audience to recognize that in all of these stories with Moses, Joseph, and Moses, we should see that holiness is wherever God is. Israel has rejected Yahweh, replaced him with a form instead of the substance, and now the worship of the temple and the law have been forgotten uh, excuse me, the, the worship, uh, the temple and the law have been forgotten uh, while the temple, they've forgotten why the temple and the law existed in the first place. Why, why was the temple, why was the law given? You see, if you forget that, why do you come to church? Why do you sit under preaching? Why do you take communion? Why are you baptized? Have you forgotten that? Is it so we can check the boxes? So we can get our ticket punched to go to heaven? So we can feel good about ourselves? So we can feel better than others? You see the, the temptation? We can turn these good things into something where we miss the point. If you're not here to sit under the Word of God, if you're not here to be transformed and and conformed by the Holy Spirit, then this is form without substance, a form of godliness. Fourth, David and Solomon in the establishment of the monarchy, verses 44 through 50, 
Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? So now Stephen mentions the settlement of the promised land and the establishment of the monarchy, which included a structure namely the tabernacle, which the people had with them in the desert. And his point is not negative against the tabernacle or the temple, but that God does not literally dwell in temples made with hands. There is no physical structure that could be built to contain God. God himself is the creator of everything, And he cannot be limited to man-made buildings or things. In fact, that's going to be one of the descriptive things of almost of all the idols is these are things made with hands. These are, these are things people construct. And you can, by the way, we can construct things obviously out of wood or stone or buildings. Other things, ideas can be turned into something that we think will contain God. And God fits in this box. And we can use him and go to him when it's convenient and use him as a magic charm, something to help us out of a bind. Maybe he's just the man upstairs in our head. His point is not negative against the tabernacle or temple. So here are the key points that Stephen makes. The God of glory appeared to Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. God was with Joseph even when he was a slave in Egypt. God came to Moses in the desert of Midian, and he called that place holy ground. In the wilderness, God had been moving from place to place in in the tent of his dwelling, yet he doesn't live in a house built by men. According to God's covenant promise, wherever God's people are, he is present with them. I want to keep in mind the big picture, too, of what's going on. Remember, and we're going to see that Israel rejected Moses, and we're seeing that the council has rejected Jesus, and this is the prelude to the gospel going to the whole world. It's about to bust out of Jerusalem. Laying the foundation work for the author of Hebrews has described as he, that is Jesus, has made the first obsolete Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The prophet that Moses had promised, the one that was greater than Moses, has arrived. Moses himself told you that was going to happen. The Messiah was the greater prophet than Moses. He gave us the law, the greater priest than Aaron, the temple, and the greater king than David. In fact, when we get to Hebrews, we're going to see that Jesus himself is what? He is the high priest. Jesus himself is the sacrifice. Jesus himself is the temple. 
a greater priest, a greater sacrifice, a greater temple. All of which the law and the temple and the priest, all of that has always been pointing to Jesus and they missed the point. The second charge against Stephen from the false witnesses was that he spoke against the law. Stephen will now turn the tables on his judges. It wasn't him who had shown disregard for the law, but rather it was them who did so like their fathers before them. It was the Israelites who failed to recognize Moses as their heaven-sent deliverer. They were the ones who had pushed him away. They rejected his leadership. And in the desert, they refused to obey him. And instead, their hearts turned back to Egypt and they became idolaters. And then Stephen quotes Amos and Isaiah, the prophets who were rebuking Israel. And so Stephen is emphasizing Israel's past unfaithfulness to the law and the prophets. And now he's going to accuse his judges here of the same thing. Verses 51 through 53. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels, and have not kept it. This is pretty bold rhetoric from Stephen. Calling the Sanhedrin stiff-necked, which means stubborn, and which is a term that both Moses and the prophets had applied to Israel, he went on to say to this group of circumcised men that they were uncircumcised in heart and in ears, which is another expression used by the prophets and by Moses. In fact, Stephen said, in effect, you're just like your fathers. He declared that they are guilty of sinning against the Holy Spirit, the Messiah, and the law, and while their fathers had persecuted every prophet and even killed those who predicted the coming of the just one, they were far worse because they themselves had actually betrayed and murdered him who the prophets had predicted, even though they had the special privilege of receiving the law through the mediation of angels, nevertheless, they had not kept it. And essentially, Stephen said that Jesus, the Messiah, had come to replace the temple and fulfill the law, which both foretold and bore witness of him. And again, they're missing the point. The primary sin in Jewish writing is the sin of idolatry. That is, worshiping something as if it was God when it isn't. Stephen is arguing that this is precisely what these people had done with their own temple. I want to quote uh, N.T. Wright here. He says, Building on the fact that the children of Israel had rejected Moses when God sent him as rescuer and deliverer, Stephen suddenly launches into a much more serious charge. 
Having rejected Moses, they then failed to worship God himself even after he had delivered them. Although God went with them in the wilderness, they didn't worship him properly even then, but worshiped idols instead, even while God was providing for them the way of true worship. And as for the temple, well, it was always at best ambiguous since God doesn't actually live in a house made with human hands, and at worst, uh, at worst, it too has become an idol. So the glorifying of the temple and the way in which it was being used to bolster up the Jewish leaders' rejection of Jesus is a sign that they are radically out of line with their own tradition. They are the children of Abraham, but they are not obeying God as Abraham did. They are the heirs of Moses, even though the law was given to him at the hands of angels. They have not kept the law. And they are indeed heirs of the earlier generations of the children of Israel, but sadly, they are doing what most of their ancestors had done, killing prophets and righteous men sent to them by God. The speech is powerful. Stephen's speech should remind and warn us all that we too can take good things and turn them into idols. Some of us have been Christians for many years. We remember a day, don't you? A day of passion and fervor for the Lord. Enthusiasm, eager to learn, eager to grow. Most of us thought we had a lot of things figured out. We developed our methods and systems and habits and traditions, and in some cases, we have, perhaps, trusted more in them than we have in the living God. We can find ourselves defending our traditions and systems and missing the Savior. We have the shell. We have the forms. We have, but in many cases, have lost the substance of a life lived in a vital relationship with God. The very people who felt the most confidence in the temple and its rituals, ended up crucifying our Lord. Now, this, of course, is a very solemn message Stephen's given, and it's hard to imagine that uh, Stephen had to know where this was headed. And he, he basically threw caution to the wind and said, I have a job to do. I was impressed Watch, I watched the National Geographic documentary on 9-11 this week, uh, which I commend to you. But they were talking to some of the first responders, the firemen who went into the building, and more than one of them independently said something like, I realized in this moment um, that this might be the most important day of my life. This is why I'm here as they go back into the building to save lives. And I think that kind of understanding and purpose, why are we here? I think Stephen had that sense. This, this, I imagine Stephen is thinking, this may be the most important moment of my life, to be able to stand here and present the gospel and defend Jesus Christ, even if it means I die. The martyrs of history are not 
These are not just stories. These are people just like you and me. That's the other amazing thing, watching that documentary on 9-11. These are people just like us. And that's part of, you know, when you watch it, you realize, that could be me. That could be my family. That could be, well, the same thing here. These are the stories of our people. And we're to find ourselves here and to take the warning. And I call you back today as my friends, as my brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's not miss the point. Let's return to those days of faith and and enthusiasm. And let's go out into this world and show the world what that looks like. Father, we thank you for your wise and sovereign plan to rescue us from our sins and give us eternal life in Jesus Christ. Thank you for revealing that plan through Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, and ultimately through Jesus himself. Thank you for faithful servants like Stephen, who bore testimony of your truth in the face of opposition and who, like others before him, the world was not worthy. Help us, O Lord, not to make idols of things or rituals or even the good things you've given us, but rather hearts that are genuine and faithful to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.